This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 634, and we welcome Frank Mortal, the ACGIH Executive Director, Dr. Neil Zimmerman, Professor Emeritus of Industrial Hygiene at Purdue, now retired, and Jack Springston, who is a regular, been a regular guest with us over the years. He's a longtime certified industrial hygienist, certified safety professional, and he's heading up the Bioaerosols Assessment and Control Book Revision. So we look forward to a great show discussing some new documents coming out from ACGIH and a revision to the Bioaerosols Book. Before we get started, we have to thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing IAQ Radio Plus. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at C-I-R-I-Science.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 at hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus at particlesplus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at graywolfsensing.com. TSI Inc. at tsi.com. Sunbelt Rentals at sunbeltrentals.com april air at april com and healthy indoors magazine at healthyindoors.com and now you can win a cool prize it's time for the iaq radio trivia question be the first to correctly answer simply email your answer to c zlotnick at cs.com or if listening live just text your answer from your computer and now here's the z-man hello everyone congratulations go out to victor kafaro chesterfield virginia who was first to identify Percival Potts as the first scientist to demonstrate that a cancer may be caused by an environmental carcinogen. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, August 6, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ Radio trivia question. In what year did the ACGIH adopt its first list of 148 exposure limits, then referred to as maximum allowable concentrations? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. So we've got Frank Mortal. He's the ACGIH Executive Director. He's responsible for providing guidance and support to the board while leading the, his team of professionals in delivering important industrial hygiene knowledge 
along a wide spectrum of topics. We've got Dr. Neil Zimmerman, a professor emeritus of industrial hygiene, retired after 32 years as a professor, researcher, and educator in the industrial hygiene program at the School of Health Sciences, Purdue University. Dr. Z is also an active member of the ACGIH Industrial Ventilation Committee and was also an active participant in the development of the recently released Ventilation for COVID-19 white papers. And we've got Jack Springston, who has over 34 years of experience in industrial hygiene and occupational health. He's been a certified industrial hygienist since 1993 and is one of less than 50 active CIHs who hold the subspecialty certificate in indoor environmental quality. He has also been a certified safety professional since 1999, and he's currently with Atlas Technical in New York City. Sorry, Jack. He's got New York City, Albany, and Long Island offices. And uh, Jack is also in charge of the the ongoing update of the ACGIH Bioaerosols Assessment and Control Book. All right, gentlemen, great to have you. Let's start with Frank Mortal. Frank, uh, always great to have you back on the show. I want to just uh, get, a, get a little update on uh, what what's going on with the ACGIH and the COVID white papers and maybe tell us you know about the two new ones that just came out. Terrific. Thank you, Joe. And what a pleasure it is for me to uh, be on the show again and to represent ACGIH. This is my third time. And uh, ACGIH is a proud sponsor, as uh, folks have seen, of IAQ Radio. And this organization has been very busy in terms of not only COVID response, but also so many indoor air quality related publications and projects and educational webinars. Uh, In particular, we've recently over the past year released a white paper series. So last year, July in ventilation for industrial settings during the COVID-19 pandemic that was produced by our industrial ventilation committee uh, that provides guidance on the topic of industrial ventilation to industrial slash commercial facilities that utilize operational controls to reduce the impact of COVID-19 pandemic for employees returning to work around the world earlier. uh, I'm sorry, just a couple months ago in June, our bioaerosols committee, another separate group of volunteers who, before I go on much farther, I just want to be, uh, say how grateful ACGIH is to have such dedicated volunteers, two of whom are with us today, of course. But the bioaerosols committee produced an engineering controls for bioaerosols in non-industrial slash non-healthcare settings regarding the control of bioaerosols transmission through ventilation and other engineering controls with a special focus on office buildings, schools, public assembly, theaters, and governmental buildings. Then last month, the third part, the third leg of the stool, if you will, of this COVID white paper series was a joint production with ASHRAE, co-authored with ASHRAE, another group that is obviously uh, so uh, revered in our industry. We jointly collaborated on a ventilation for industrial settings during the COVID-19 pandemic, kind of a phase two paper in conjunction with what our industrial ventilation committee put out Last year, this includes expert advice from ASHRAE's esteemed technical committee, 9.2 industrial air conditioning, while also providing an FAQ section by topic, along with an intensive list of resources. So those are some of the, to set the table for what we're going to be talking about today related to your audience on white paper COVID-19 controls. We also put out uh, recently a bioaerosols monograph authored by Jack Springston on the call today to kind of really uh, tie, the, uh, tie the pieces together on what's relevant uh, in today's marketplace for the IEQ listenership. 
Fantastic. Great, great overview of, uh, of our discussion here today. Before we get into too much detail, though, I want to introduce Dr. Zimmerman to our audience. Um, both Frank and Jack have been around a little bit with us in the past, but Dr. Z, you're, you're new to the audience. You've uh, had a long career in, in academia, but also in, in uh, consulting on your own and also in working with organizations like ACGIH and, and working with a lot of students. And I'm wondering um, has the demand for spots in like the industrial hygiene program at Purdue, what's it been like? Has it been up and down? Has it been pretty steady? I see concerns that we don't have enough young people coming into the industry. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, let me say it's wonderful to be here. And uh, I'm very pleased that I'm able to wear one of these Z-Man hats as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's a big debate whether uh, Cliff the Z-Man or Dr. Z the Z-Man was the original Z-Man. So we can both uh, dupe that out at some other time. I won this on one of the previous trivia contests. So nice. <laughs> thanks, thanks to, uh, to the, 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 the good old Z-Man there, Cliff. Uh, well, it, the Purdue program is, is doing well. Uh, I'm very proud of that program, even though I've been retired for eight years. But we ha- have hundreds of students out there, uh, everywhere from uh, currently the acting head of OSHA. Uh, Jim Frederick is one of our alums. Uh, we have uh-huh. EHS leaders at NASA, at Homeland Security, and Disney World, and uh, throughout all kinds of industry, government, consulting. Uh, the numbers do go up and down. But as far as the potential for a career, I can't, uh, I can't say enough about what an amazing career industrial hygiene is, how fulfilling it is to be able to, to say at the end of the day, you've actually protected people's health and, and their very lives. Uh, I hope people are sitting down when I say these things, but uh, going to work is, uh, is about the eighth leading cause of death in this country, believe it or not, simply going to work. Uh, it's estimated that over 5,000 people die every year in the, just in the United States due to accidents at work, which means one person is dying every 99 minutes. So sometime like a half an hour after this show is over, someone will have died. And from uh, occupational diseases long term, uh, we're talking an estimate of over 50,000 people a year just in the United States, which means every 10 minutes six people are gonna die within this, within this hour uh, due to long-term chronic illnesses due to going to work. And there was a UN study that I uh, just saw recently that estimated as many as thir- every 30 seconds somewhere in the world, someone is dying from toxic exposures. So this is a serious business. There's a lot of potential, there's always risk out there. And uh, this is a fantastic career. Well, that's interesting. Thank you for joining us. It's great to see. You. I love the hat. Um, let's go to Frank Mortal. Frank, what's what is ACGIH doing to try and help bring younger people into you know younger people, minorities, women into the industry? It's a great question, and we have taken a very proactive approach. We feel this year. So for students, any full time student who's officially matriculated in an undergraduate or graduate program related to the OEHS field, it's free. Complimentary student membership, they then have access to the renowned TLV book, our OEV guide, all of these different elements that come with membership to ACGIH. That's free for for any students. Beyond that, we also have now what we're calling an emerging career professional membership. 
So if you are newer into your profession as an, I, as an OEHS professional, five years or less of work experience uh, allows for $95 membership dues. Traditional dues are, are and have been for a long time, $205. So we're really trying uh, as best we can to promote this next generation, this, this new wave of influencers, young investigators to come not only into the field, but to understand the benefits of participating and engaging with ACGIH. And by engagement, I mean, not just taking a numeric value per se from our TLVs, but utilizing in particular our scientific documentation that supports those values and applying those scientific principles into the field, into the research laboratory, or perhaps even in a teaching academic situation uh, in the school. All right. Thank you, Frank. Jack, let's, let's get your thoughts on that topic real quick. You're with Atlas Technical in New York City. I'm sure you guys hire a lot of people. And I'm wondering, you know, I hear in the news that it's very tough to find people to take jobs these days. What are you seeing with respect to um, the job market in, in health? And I like the way you said, Frank, uh, occupational environmental health and safety. Dr. Zimmerman and I talked about that the other day. It's not just industrial hygiene. It's kind of blended uh, health and safety and industrial hygiene. So go ahead, Jack. Um, so first off, Atlas Technical, uh, we actually have over 140 offices nationwide. Um, I think around 3,500 uh, employees. Um, and currently something like 26 CIH is working for the company. Um, wow. So yeah, as far as Getting good qualified people, it can be a challenge. Um, fortunately, I should say, um, a, a relatively new CIH, young CIH, reached out to me today uh, and is looking for a job. And, and I need to interview her, <laughs> most certainly. But um, uh, but. Um, and, and I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but the, the, the field definitely needs um, new blood coming in. Um, I mean, just look at me, look at Don Weeks, look at Neil. Um, we're a bunch of old gray hair people. <laughs> anyway, and we need new blood in, in, in the field for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the documents. We've got the new ventilation for industrial settings during COVID-19 pandemic. Um, let's start with that one. Dr. Z, if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the more practical suggestions for the use of ventilation principles and concepts to help reduce worker exposure to droplets and aerosols, I guess that's, you know, that's a big change in that, um, at first we didn't recognize, or at least some of the medical groups didn't recognize aerosol transmission was a big issue. Uh, now I think everybody's starting to come along to that. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the key concepts. Maybe we could start with the two diagrams we went over with Jonathan Hale, bring it in low and slow, kind of get the background going. Well, yeah, you raised a good point about the uh, issue of droplets before we get into the, the low and slow. I know that's one of your favorite things. And Jonathan <laughs> Hale is uh, one of the gurus of uh, of ventilation as the chair of the ventilation committee. Uh, so, you know, the CDC and, and the WHO, I think, uh, got it wrong. Uh, the whole interpretation of what 
droplets are uh, is misunderstood by a lot of people in terms of whether or not they can be airborne. Some people were defining it as five microns or 100 microns. Uh, basically, the big problem is that droplets, people were thinking of droplets as the spit gobs that are coming out of people's mouths. And, and that was the whole issue, uh, you know, not getting it, not getting other people's spit in your face, stay away from them, not getting it on the surfaces and avoiding touching surfaces. And the whole issue of aerosol transmission was just sort of poo-pooed. It took almost a year before people came around, the CDC, for example, came around to recognizing that aerosol transmission probably was the, the, the most important route of, of exposure. Uh, so we had a, a problem with that. And then we also have a big paradigm shift that other people, I, I spent a little time preparing for this, this, uh, this show because I've never been on the radio before. And uh, I listened to a lot of your previous uh, illustrious guests. And so no, none of this that I'm saying is new. Other, other people have already said this, but as industrial hygienists, as ventilation people, uh, we're facing a paradigm shift because ventilation in the past has really been thought of either HVAC, which is comfort ventilation, uh, where you want everything nicely distributed for good temperature control, good humidity control, control of odors everywhere throughout a room. In other words, very well mixed. And, uh, and then there's also the industrial ventilation, which is a totally different approach where you're, you're trying to control and remove as much as possible trace toxic contaminants. So then when you get into the industrial ventilation part, we've got two basic kinds, local exhaust, where you're able to remove the contaminant before it gets out to the people. You're removing it at the source. And then there's the general exhaust where you're trying to control it by mixing and diluting it, or perhaps by moving it in a laminar flow to, to sweep it away from people. Uh, the, the issue usually was that local exhaust is best to use, especially for toxic materials, and general exhaust is typically for low toxicity materials. Well, now we've got a total... Uh, a total uh, dilemma because not all the, the sources are not the, the, uh, the processes in industry, but they're the people. The people are now the sources of the, of the contaminant. And we're dealing with COVID with something that is not low toxicity, is very high toxicity, high hazard. So we've got this dilemma and a paradigm shift where we have to be using general exhaust, but we have to use it in the, the most appropriate way possible to keep the virus away from people's breathing zones. And so there we get into this idea of, do we wanna mix the flow and spread all the virus around everybody or do we wanna try and move it away? And the best approach is with what's called displacement. And if we show the one of the figures now, uh, displacement as Jonathan Hale uh, dubbed in one of your shows a while back, to introduce the air low and slow near the ground uh, so it doesn't come in at high velocity. It's not turbulent, and you take then if you and then you remove it up at the roof level. And if you slide down to the next one, you see you take advantage of heat that's generated by equipment in the room and even by people. Because remember, we're comfortable in the 68 to 74 degree range, and people are in the 90 degree range, 95 degrees typical skin temperature. Uh, exhausted breath is about 98 degrees Fahrenheit. And so 
you take advantage of what's called this thermal plume and the air comes in and, and catches all the exhausted contaminant, which is coming from people and brings it up into the upper air where then it's exhausted. So this is a real paradigm shift to be having to use general exhaust for high toxicity with people being the source. And that's why we're encouraging people, if at all possible, to try and focus on, on the air patterns. But the, as far as what your other question about what are the key factors, the other key factors of ventilation, good ventilation, are to introduce as much outside air as possible and to increase filtration of any recirculated air as much as possible. And I noticed that the recommendation is uh, MERV 13, but I, I thought I saw somewhere maybe MERV 14 even. Well, that's a good question too, Joe. Uh, typical filters that people have used in, in, their, in their homes and offices and commercial buildings and even in industry, probably in the MERV 6 to 8 range. And uh, these are good for filtering out bugs and lint and uh, and, and hair and things like that, but certainly aren't gonna remove anything down anywhere near the size of a virus particle or a particle containing some viruses that are still inhalable size. Uh, so what we're recommending is in both of the documents, both in the ASHRAE uh, ACGI ventilation document and the bioaerosol document, recommending 13, uh, if at all possible, 14 is even better, uh, the higher you go, of course, you've got better filtration, but you also get a lot more pressure drop. You make the fan and the, and the system work harder, which means you're going to have possibly less airflow. So that's very important to balance these things out. But with the design of, of all the different variety of filters, it's possible to, uh, most people feel that you can get a 13 uh, with, uh, without affecting the pressure drop too much and affecting the airflow rate. Uh, talking to some people at Purdue earlier today, they've actually been able to, in some systems to be able to, up to uh, go up to MERV-17, which actually is what's called HEPA or HEPA filters, which removes 99.97% of particles at the 0.3 micron. As you can see here in this, in this diagram, uh, you look at the three different care, uh, uh, size categories. The white on the left-hand side is, is the, uh, the 0.3 to 0.1 to, to one, and then the middle is the 0.1 to one. These are microns. Uh, as a frame of reference, a hair is about 60 microns to 100 microns. Uh, so these are so tiny you can't see them. And then the third category is the one to 10. Uh, you can see this big dip down in the middle range there and the, 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 the most penetrating particle size. That's the actual trivia question that I won my hat for. Uh, is about point, 0.2 or point 0.3 microns. Uh, and that's where we test these filters. But the nice thing is that as they get smaller on the left-hand side there, you can see that the, the percent efficiency on the left side of the graph increases due to diffusion. And, and then on the right side, as the particles get bigger, uh, the efficiency increases because of gravitational forces. So, uh, we were able to, and also as you build up a filter cake, as you build up more and more dust and dirt on these filters, that of course the pressure drop will increase some, but it will also even improve the efficiency as well. Let's go on. Now, you, you mentioned uh, 
I thought I can't remember now if it was before the show or not, Doctor Z. We were talking about diffusers and and methods of using diffusers to help try and facilitate this low and slow type of uh, ventilation that we want. Can you talk a little bit about that and how we would maybe make certain adjustments? Because it seems like it's really hard to change your mechanical system to go from, you know, a diffuser coming out the ceiling to trying to bring in air low and slow. That's a very good point, Joe, uh, because in the past, we haven't really thought about <clears throat> this whole low and slow and trying to get particles away from people's uh, exhaled breath. Never really thought about this before. Uh, the point of a diffuser is to try and get the air to come into a room as turbulently as possible to get good mixing. And so uh, we have diffuser, diffusers that uh, that have the air come to distribute it around through the room, either up um, at the top or along the sides of the walls, sometimes along the floor. But the whole point is to try and get as good mixing as possible. And uh, so a lot of these times the diffusers are small, they're round, uh, maybe a foot diameter, and then you have returns. And, and one of the issues always you have to be careful of is if you position the, the supply and the exhaust diffusers too close together, then the air doesn't even get into the room to do any good at all because you have what's called short circuiting. It just goes from, uh, from inlet directly to the outlet. But with uh, the, this approach with displacement, the, the best approach is to then have a larger diffuser, which allows the air to come out of it as much, much lower velocity and to have these diffusers down low uh, or to have the diffusers up in the ceiling, it can be done as well, where the air uh, is allowed to, to move down, to settle down, and then as it heats up, it rises back up to the exhaust. But uh, these diffusers uh, can take lots of different shapes. Yes, it can be uh, expensive to redesign a building, an older building especially, that's got built-in diffusers into the walls, but you can actually have fairly nice architecturally pleasing diffusers where the ducting can be brought along the outside of the wall and down to something that sort of looks like a, a speaker box. They can be built into cabinets. They can be built into the vertical part of a, uh, of a stair step. So there's lots of options for different kinds of diffuser uh, orientations in order to allow enough uh, surface area to have air coming out re relatively slowly around the floor level to rise up uh, and then to capture any exhaled breath and be exhausted out the ceiling. Fortunately, a lot of our exhaust is already in the ceiling. And so simply by, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an architectural engineer, but I would think that with not too much complication, you could access supply ductwork and uh, have it external to the wall so that you can actually uh, bring it down to the floor and have uh, architecturally pleasing diffusers down there. I, I've got a couple great text questions here and comments. Before I do that, I want to go to Jack Springston. Jack, you're in New York, you know, New York City, uh, buildings everywhere, people everywhere. I'm wondering, you know, are you getting projects? Is your company getting a lot of projects where they're asked to help with redesigning ventilation and um, as uh Bernie Fontaine mentions here, um, configuring the spaces properly so that we get that airflow, you know, and that proper ventilation. Um, 
as far as redesigning, no. But uh, I have been involved in a number of number of projects where they're they're looking um, again specifically because of COVID. Um, how do we occupy these spaces as safely as possible? Um, and depending depending on the on the buildings, uh, you get some of these older buildings where they have no forced air ventilation, and it's a matter of we we need to somehow be introducing outside air, um, get the air moving, um, exhausted out of the space um, to the outdoors and bringing in, in uh, fresh air. But then the issue with that is, is we're pulling in unconditioned air through whatever spaces we can. Um, alternately, we can, we can introduce supplemental um, uh, air filtration through, through um, small local uh, local units that are HEPA filter, um, so uh, it, it can it can be challenging. Um, and also to touch upon uh, what Neil was saying, a vast majority of our commercial buildings um, are designed with ceiling air diffusers um, and ceiling returns, um, and and they never considered. Um, an issue such as what we have here, where we've got an infectious agent and, and we need to configure the air, um, <clears throat> the air movement differently. Uh, and, and I think it's gonna be a, um, a huge challenge uh, to either retrofit or, or somehow change um, existing ventilation systems. I think a, a good point that, uh... Ernie Fontaine brings up here in, in, in the chat is let's talk about airflow and air distribution within the occupied space. Uh, many rooms are not configured properly or have been reconfigured without considering the proper airflow and distribution, renovations, etc. There are also new diffusers on the market to help with mixing rather than the two to four baffles. We talked a little bit about that. Neil, I wanted to give you a chance, Dr. Z, to comment on the room configuration issue. Well, and, and uh, yeah, I want to bring up one one quick thing that related to that. Also, is that uh, I didn't I don't want to give the impression that simply by having vertical displacement uh, and having out, more outside air and better filtration is going to be the magic bullet, because it's not. Because we're, we don't want to ignore the uh, the close uh, what's called the near field exposure range as well. So social distancing, although the six-foot rule is not a magic bullet either, because aerosol transmission, as we've been talking about, can get through the, the entire air. But you still want to have masks indoors and have limited number of people indoors. Since we don't know who's vaccinated, who's not, who's infectious, who's not infectious. Uh, we, we still want to focus on that close, near-field type of exposure protection. With masks and with uh, and with with social distancing, and you know, if I had my druthers, I don't know what that expression came from, but if I had those, uh, I would certainly recommend everybody not just wear a mask, but to wear an N95. Now, I know some of them are pretty; uh, they're tight on your face, and and the, the bands around your your head are not that comfortable. But there are some that are lower breathing resistance, and without doing any advertising, because I don't want to product promotion or anything. There are products on the market that are approved N95 that actually don't even need straps. 
that are adhesive, medical adhesive that stick. That's why I cut down my beard from a full beard to a tiny little goatee. So I could have the, the, my beard totally inside of my, my N95 mask. Uh, but getting back to your original question about room orientation, uh, the, in, in addition to social distancing and masking and, and limited numbers of people, uh, it, it is important to avoid horizontal airflow because you, want, you, you don't want to have uh, one person uh, downwind of another person. So having personal fans and uh, pedestal fans and even ceiling fans are, are really not a good idea. Uh, on the other hand, running local exhaust hoods in an industrial setup or, uh, or e even the general ventilation, uh, even bathroom fans, as long as they exhaust outside, running those 24 seven, or at least the entire time that people are occupied in a building and for a couple hours before and after occupation, uh, those are all things that can be uh, helpful in, in if you can't improve ventilation completely. I've got another text that you kind of addressed a lot in this other text, but I still want to go back to it when we come back from our break. We're going to stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in two minutes with our guests, Frank Mortal, Dr. Neil Zimmerman, and Jack Springston. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, at AIHA.org. ACGIH. Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety Interested in Defining Their Science at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research at cirisciences.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at hb2021-america.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at tsi.com. 
Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Frank Mortal, Dr. Neil Zimmerman, and Jack Springston. Frank, before I go any further, I just wanted to make sure, is there anything you wanted to add to what we've touched on so far today? No, but you can see why ACGH is so uh, fortunate to have such experts uh, at our disposal. About 100 or so volunteers contribute to five different scientific committees, and whether uh, the, the expertise is on full display with both Neil and Jack here today. So uh, I, appreciate, I, appreciate I appreciate that. All right, I've got a, a long text here, but I think it's good. And I think, uh, Neil, you covered a lot of this, but the, the essence is that the research suggests that nearby transmission is dominant and best controlled by masking and social distancing, which, which you did cover. Um, Moreover, increased ventilation has not been shown to make a difference except in areas with virtually no outdoor air or airflow patterns that concentrate the virus in the breathing zone. Is Ed missing something? Do you agree with what Ed's saying or maybe have a slightly different approach to it? Well, yeah, Ed and I go way back uh, and I, I admire Ed tremendously and uh, both professionally and musically, because he always uh, likes to end his talks with a, a banjo solo. Uh, Absolutely. Whereas I, I do, uh, sometimes I'll do a clarinet solo. But uh, <laughs> I, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree a little bit here, because I, I, on, on the one hand, there may not be a lot of research that's really uh, demonstrated yet. Part of that, uh, and I, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Jack has to say about this as far as uh, real-time analysis of COVID virus in the air, because that's what we really need to be able to determine if in fact, we, what is the exposure? I mean, the best way to determine exposure from an industrial hygiene standpoint is not by modeling, but by taking samples. Uh, you know, it's a combination of both because we can't be sampling everywhere every second of the day, but uh, we can use smoke, for visualizing airflow patterns. There are now uh, methods that we can use that's a bacteriophage that's, that's similar to a non-toxic version of uh, something that acts like the virus that we can see how it transmits through ventilation systems and people have been using that widely. We have computational fluid dynamics. Uh, but to be on the safe side, because we do know it's an aerosol transmission as well as, as uh, the near field. Uh, th those are the two most important things. Fomites, the surface contact is really not the, the critical. You still obviously wanna have good hygiene, personal hygiene, but uh, if you've got air virus in the air, you want, and you're recirculating air with an HVAC system, it only makes sense that you wanna improve that filtration. You don't wanna be pumping air into another room or back into the same room uh, that hasn't been cleaned up and you want to uh, adjust your economizers so that you have as much outside air as possible. Uh, so it's really both things. You have to balance both things. And uh, a, a lot of what Ed has commented in the, in the past is that, uh, you know, before we start talking about all this expense of improving filters and 
uh, increasing outside air, just having the proper maintenance so that the HVAC unit is working. Uh, a lot of places, the units aren't even working. For example, uh, I was involved in the reopening committee for my synagogue and in surveying the eight uh, rooftop units we have on our building, uh, five of the units, the economizers were disconnected or the wires were frayed. And who knows if we were even getting a single drop of outside air in, except if someone opened the door or window. So uh, we, we put money into actually fixing the economizers and just simple maintenance of HVAC is something that's critically important for schools too. Because I know schools have, uh, have pressures of finance for all different aspects and probably one of the things that gets short-changed is uh, the physical plant. So those yeah. are things that have to be improved too. Those are such important points, and you're you're right. Ed did bring that up on his show. I couldn't agree with both of you more. If we, you know, if we just took some of this big pot of money that schools are getting and others, and used it to do a better job of maintaining our mechanical systems and our our built environment in general, I, I think it would be a huge improvement. But um, I wanted. I think you bring up a good point. Maybe now's kind of the time to bring in also the monograph on bioaerosols, air sampling, instrumentation. Get Jack back in here. Jack, what progress are we making on doing exactly what Doctor Z just talked about, and and actually getting good air sampling data that tells us whether the virus is present or not, and how much of it? From uh, papers that I've read. Um... A lot of the air sampling that's been done specifically for COVID-19, um, a lot of it is coming back as none to tech, uh, except for if you're doing sampling in, in um, hospitals, um, where you presumably have a lot of people, a lot of virus. Um, and in most of those cases, um, they were only finding low levels. And also of... of, of um, I guess confounding perhaps is, is the word um, uh, or problem with, with the air sampling is um, you can detect the RNA, but you can't tell if the, if the virus is viable or not. So the, the question is uh, of how much use really it would the air sampling be? Um, if, if you, number one, can't detect it and number two, can't tell if it's, if it's viable or not. Are people making improvements, advancements? Are people working on better ways of, of doing this? Um, specifically for COVID, I, I do not know. Um, now, most of our the real-time instrumentation um, that is out there currently, um, most of it was, was actually driven because of bio-warfare um, bio um, or concerns about bio-warfare. Uh, a lot of this was was um, originally developed uh, around the Gulf War, right? Um, back back in um, during uh, uh, Bush one, um, and, and the concern about bio warfare um, over there. And so they they developed uh, some real time. Um, it was fluorescence uh, spectroscopy, uh, where you pull in in the air sample. And then, depending on the fluorescence from UV light, you can presumably identify, you know, is it anthrax or is it not? And that's what one of, actually, one of our sponsors, Instascope, I think their their product was right. based right. on that, you know, that background. And they've uh, 
work toward getting better identification of bacteria and fungi and then maybe some uh, other, you know, pollens, et cetera. But I don't think they've gone into, you know, the virus side of things yet. Um, I guess, Jack, my question is, you know, with the monograph, what I reviewed looks like, you know, we're still using techniques used hundred years ago or, or maybe a little less than a hundred years ago. Uh, is, am I accurate in saying that, that, you know, we really haven't made that much progress in, in sampling instrumentation for this type of issue. Well, I, I, I guess it depends. Are you talking about researchers or are you talking about the common practitioner? Fantastic. Excellent. Excellent point, Jack. Um, let's start with the researchers. Are, are they getting better, you know, instrumentation, and uh, I guess it also, you have to tie the instrumentation into whether there's analysis or if it's real time. Yeah, so from research end, you've, you've got, um, so in addition to um, your fluorescence spectroscopy, we've, we've now got um, elastic scattering, real-time um, uh, devices. And, and that's, it, it's basically think of a, like a, um, a, a real-time microscope um, and, and it's using optical properties. Um, at, at multiple different directions to be able to identify um, what the particle is. And, and most of that's actually being used for uh, looking at uh, pollens, pollen in the air. Well, we also have microfluidic uh, techniques, which is um, uh, more like an assay um, technology, uh, real-time assay. But um, these instru instruments are extremely expensive right now. Um, and so for a practitioner standpoint, it, it's not happening. You know, I remember, I bet it was 10 years ago, we had Dr. Scott on from up in Toronto, and he was talking about how, you know, PCR and, and doing, you know, that type of analysis would be, you know, we, we'd be able to take a, a, a thumb drive type instrument and, and take some samples with that and get all this information back and, I know that, like you say, the researchers may be at that point, but certainly the practitioners out in the field just, just aren't at that point yet. Um, are we making any progress, Jack? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, and, and in reality, from a practitioner's standpoint, um, we've pulled away from a lot of the um, older techniques, uh, things like um, using your Anderson sampler. Uh, for culturable samples, um, using um, impingers, uh, rotor rods, um, the Burkhart seven-day uh, tape samplers. Um, I, I was talking to uh, Tony Havocs a, a few weeks ago, um, and, and he was like, I didn't see where you talked about the Burkhart in, in, in your chapter. And I was like, yeah, there, it's, it's in the table. I didn't go into depth about it because nobody uses it anymore. <laughs> I still use it. I was like, oh, of course you do. <laughs> You're probably the only person who does. But um, with the advent of the spore trap samples, which uh, I think it was Dan Baxter who, who invented them um, back in, um, it was probably just shortly before the 1999 version of the book came out. Okay. Um, everybody jumped on that um, because it's, it's easy to collect the sample. Um, it, it, it's quick, uh, it's, it's quick and easy, relatively easy to, to analyze them. 
Although um, you really have to question the results when you get them back from the lab, because you could take that same sample, send it to a different lab and end up with completely different results. Uh, but it's or even a different analyst at the same lab. You might get right. Right. So I, I tell people, if you don't like the results, we'll send it to a different lab. Um, <laughs> but it, it seems like a vast majority of, of people, that's that's what they've kind of glommed onto is the sport trap samples. And with the, the new it's, uh, monograph is kind of like a, a chapter out of this new bioaerosols book. Is that accurate to say? Uh, it will be a chapter in the new bioaerosols book. It, it, it actually was. Um, so ACGIH originally had um, the chapter in the bioaerosols book, as well as a separate monograph in the, in the air sampling. Uh, I think it's the air sampling techniques book. Um, or, um, and, and what I basically did was, was took the two and kind of fused them together and then, and then updated it. Um, so now it's just a single, um, a single chapter that will appear in both books. Okay. And how, uh, just real quick, how's, how's progress coming on the rewrite of the, of the whole book? Um, so I need to correct you a little bit. Uh, you said that I was heading up the effort. It's actually, um, Sherry Marsham and myself. Uh, without Sherry, this this um, would probably be a lot further behind than it is. Um, so it, it it took a little while to to build up the steam um, and and get the ball rolling. Um, but uh, currently we're we're um, we're moving pretty well. I think we have four chapters that are done. Um, a few other chapters, uh, two or three other chapters that, that are um, almost completed. Uh, and, and the aim is to have the entire book um, ready to hand over to ACGIH by uh, June, end of June next year. Fantastic. And we, uh, we still want to get you on here, Sherry. So, you know, I'll be, I'll be coming to Coming to try and get you back on here. On here, we'd love to hear from you as well. Hey, I've, what, I, what I'd like to do is, is Doctor Z, maybe we could kind of take the you know the whole COVID nineteen and the industrial ventilation and the non industrial ventilation, and maybe use an example of what's going on at Purdue right now to kind of illustrate how at least one major university is approaching you know going back full-time to in-classroom work. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what Purdue's doing. Thank you, Joe. I'd love to do that because I'm very proud of uh, being a boilermaker for 32 and a half years, and I still consider myself one. Uh, Purdue has taken a, a very uh, extensive approach. They developed last year what was called the Protect Purdue Program with all kinds of committees involved uh, throughout the, the campus activities. Uh, they developed what's called a Purdue, Protect Purdue Pledge that everyone had to, to sign as a, taking personal responsibility and commitment to help protect everyone else. Uh, last year, they had indoor masks, of course, and they had hybrid classes. Uh, but this year, their, their focus is on getting back to normal in terms of classes in, in, in class, uh, education, but uh, with masks uh, mandated on campus, anywhere indoors, uh, proof of vaccination. Unless if you if you don't have a vaccination, then you have to agree to routine testing and contact tracing, which could be as much as weekly. 
another interesting thing, uh, I'm sure many people know about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and the Golden Ticket. Well, uh, the Purdue, Purdue colors are old gold and black. And so they have the old golden ticket contest where students that were vaccinated could enter a contest and they awarded 10 uh, randomly selected people that got the old golden ticket, $9,992 each towards school expenses. Uh, all employees are able to, to enter if they're vaccinated uh, to get a, a season's pass for all the football games. So they're, they're doing all kinds of uh, incentives. Uh, as far as the ventilation systems, uh, they, as I mentioned before, they actually, some of them are actually able to get up to MERV 17. Uh, they're focusing on the high density buildings uh, and classrooms that have a lot of students in them uh, by having those run continuously, increasing the outdoor air uh, coming into it and uh, trying to focus on those for increased filtration. So they're, they're doing all kinds of things to, uh, they're really taking this seriously. They had a thousand beds uh, designated last year for isolation, uh, rooms and dorms and different places where people needed to be isolated. This year, because the case numbers are so much lower because of vaccination and all the other controls, they're, they're modifying that a bit where people are gonna have to take more responsibility themselves. But basically it's a personal responsibility, a uh, very big emphasis on that too. Well, that's, that's important. Now, do you know if they're using any portable air filtration or um, if they're using any type of spot filtration? I, I haven't heard anything about that, but uh, portable HEPA units are, uh, are handy. Uh, there's, there is, uh, it's another option uh, to help out to get uh, room cleaning taking place as long, again, as uh, so important as, as the airflow pattern. Uh, so I, I think one of your uh, previous guests, uh, Dr. Kirkura, Kirkuri, uh, talked about uh, making sure that it wasn't being, the air wasn't being picked up from near the floor because then it's a vacuum cleaner. Uh, you want the air to be pulled into the unit near the breathing zone, but it would be great if these units could be designed to pull it up high and then exhaust it out slow and low, just like the Jonathan Hale quote, uh, so that the clean air comes in and then starts to rise up again. Uh, but portable HEPA units are another alternative that is one of the ASHRAE and ACGH recommendations uh, and the bioaerosol recommendations in, in these recent white papers. All right, let's go to the roundup, John. The roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. Very good. Let's go to the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Uh, two Z-Mans today. Cliff, any final thoughts or questions for our guests? I have, I have two. Um, uh, the first is a question for Frank Mortal. Uh, Frank, you were talking about all these cool things that ACGIH is doing 
to uh, attract young people uh, in, in college and, and so on and so forth. I know someone actually in high school, he's going to be a senior this year, uh, you know, in September, and he actually seems to be quite interested uh, in industrial hygiene. I'm just wondering if there's anything that you do for, you know, people of that age or how I should direct him or, you know, should I buy him an ACGIH membership for his birthday? Right. Well, I won't have to buy anything because the complimentary hey, you know, which student should I membership do? Will, will start for that individual as soon as they enter college. But one of the elements that we're realizing through these new outreach opportunities is that so many, quote, younger investigators or college age folks are helping us and looking to developing perhaps a committee to identify that next generation exposure and reaching out to high schools and to, uh, you know, the, the help with that development curriculum, perhaps with counselors, is something that's on the radar for ACGIH. Thanks. Okay, Joe, my second one deal is really one of the questions that was uh, uh, put in by Evelyn Tejita. Uh, it's concerning to see how hotels are working hard to disinfect fomites and surfaces, and the disinfectants are noticeable uh, in the common areas, but in every room, every PTAC and HVAC system that she's inspected. Uh, she's found maintenance is neglected. Uh, in some cases, they're poorly installed and there's mold, bacteria, and biofilm observable. So, you know, how can we get these people to shift, you know, the focus where it needs to be rather than, you know, making themselves and some of the occupants feel better because they see people walking around and spraying and wiping a lot of stuff. Anybody want to jump in? I'll tell you what, let me make it a little easier because this ties into a question I had already put together for Dr. Z. What advice does the the documents give on how often, if ever, we should disinfect ductwork um, and, and or clean mechanical systems in general, HVAC coils, PTACs, et cetera? Dr. Z? Yeah, unfortunately, there there is no good recommendation at the moment for that. Uh, that's a, it's a good question. Uh, the, the, the excess amount of effort and expense that has been put in on uh, all the disinfectants and all the, the chemicals, even though the ones that are on EPA list, but they still get airborne and they're still mm-hmm. not good to be inhaled. Uh, it, I, I think that's something we have to be very concerned about, especially if we're putting them inside air distribution systems. We, we do obviously want to have good maintenance to keep them clean, uh, but uh, overloaded with disinfectant chemicals is, is something that uh, is still, I think, a, a big question mark. And we, we don't really have a strong recommendation for that at, at the moment. Uh, the best thing, I think, my advice is to carry a little bottle of, uh, this, of uh, hand sanitizer in your pocket or your purse. And uh, if you touch something, just clean your hands. Well, Jack, I'd like to know if you'd like to make a comment on the HVAC disinfecting or ductwork disinfecting topic. It's a waste of money. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now you're talking specifically disinfecting, not necessarily cleaning, or both. Uh, well, generally speaking, uh, if you think about it, um, if if you have settled dust in, in your ductwork, right, it's settled. It's not going to go anywhere unless you start banging on that ductwork and kick it up, and then it'll get into the airstream. So 
Um, I, I can understand cleaning of, of exhaust ducts for kitchens. Yes, there's fire hazard. Um, if, if, if you have ductwork that is uh, grossly, uh, shouldn't say contaminated, but dirty where, where it's obstructing the airflow, yes, um, uh, cleaning makes sense. But uh, generally speaking, going in and disinfecting and cleaning the ductwork every year makes no sense. It's a waste of money. All right. Well, thank you all. Uh, let's go around the horn. Final thoughts, anything we missed, anything you'd like to add? Frank Mortal, let's start with you. Well, thank you again, Joe and Cliff. And this has been a, a great discussion. I'll wrap up by saying ACGIH for many years, decades, has been recognized as the industrial ventilation expert organizationally. We have an on-demand basics and in industrial ventilation course. Now new this year, of course, our fundamentals in industrial ventilation and our now uh, computational fluid dynamics courses involved with an advanced industrial ventilation course coming in later this year. So we are a resource for all of these different topics we've been discussing today. And again, so grateful and honored to be part of the IEQ radio family. You know, I want to second that industrial ventilation course, because I remember our, our old technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, who was a longtime member of ACGIH and AIHA. He would bring up that course and information from that course everywhere he taught. Um, you know, just because it says industrial ventilation doesn't mean it doesn't have application to other types of situations. Great point, Joe. Great point. I think that's a great, and I'm glad you brought that up. Dr. Z, final thoughts, comments? Well, just, uh, it's been a pleasure being on, on the show with you. Thank you so much. Get vaccinated. Wear masks, social distance, avoid indoors with lots of unknown people, crowded people. Uh, the less people, the less time you spend indoors, uh, the better off you're going to be. Get an N95 if you can and uh, eat outdoors if you have to go out to a restaurant. And, and focus from a ventilation standpoint, focus on the airflow patterns and improving fresh air. Great summary. Thank you, Dr. Z. And Jack Springston, final thoughts. Uh, just real quick, uh, COVID is not over. Yeah, yeah, I, that's a very, very important point. Um, a lot of people thought it was over, and now it's coming back with a vengeance. And this is going to be another interesting year for IAQ Radio, ACGIH, and all the others that are trying to deal with this unfortunate situation we find ourselves in. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guests, Frank Mortal, Dr. Neil Zimmerman, and Jack Springston, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, Z-Man number one or number two, I'm not sure yet. And of course, to our engineer at the controls, John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, please. Oh, by the way, next week, we got another great show. Joe Steebrook is coming in and uh, then we're going to take our little summer vacation, but we'll be doing some great flashback shows. So join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.